Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Palm Sunday is pretty cool, isn't it? Waving branches, shouting crowds, royal arrivals, the spreading news of miracles, the latest of which is fantastic indeed. Lazarus, a dead man, is brought back to life. Walking out of the tomb after four days. The stuff of legend, indeed. Grand and glorious. Exciting and exhilarating. Who wouldn't want to ride that emotional high as long and as far as it could carry you? Who wouldn't want to hang with Jesus? Well, as the saying goes, curb your enthusiasm. Don't buy into that theology of glory. Trouble is brewing and not everybody is happy. Hanging with Jesus can be very, very painful. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after Him. So concluded the Pharisees in our first Gospel lesson today, the one that described Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. That was the event that gave Palm Sunday its name as the crowds laid branches and cloaks upon the road while the King of Kings fulfilled the prophecy that the Messiah would arrive humbly on a donkey. Gaining nothing indeed, those Pharisees. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his soul? Jesus had used those words right before His transfiguration to indicate that anyone who would follow Him must daily take up His cross. The Pharisees weren't interested in that sort of prophet, though. And they didn't really want to gain the whole world. They just wanted to keep a very firm hold on their little corner of it. The petty power and prestige and privileges that came from being reluctant and resentful vassals of Herod and Pontius Pilate. Though the Pharisees and the other Jewish religious leaders despised these foreigners who governed their land and their people, at least they were allowed some degree of control over the nation's spiritual matters. But now this Jesus of Nazareth was threatening to upset the delicate, carefully crafted balance between church and state. So long as these religious leaders kept the population from doing anything stupid, such as those ridiculous and hopeless rebellions of the Zionists, there would be no harsh clampdown by the power of imperial Rome. Business as usual could continue. Worship could go on in the temple and in the synagogues. Sacrifices of the approved animals conveniently purchased right there on the temple grounds with funds that had been converted into the local currency by the approved money changers would go on. The Passover and all the other festivals would be celebrated, bringing thousands and thousands of Jews to Jerusalem and pumping up the local economy much better than the Olympics or the Super Bowl ever could. The treasury of the temple supporting the lavish lifestyle of these leaders would swell along with the number of people who came to worship. 
That's certainly ample motivation to keep everyone calm and happy, isn't it? All of this clamor about Jesus and about His teachings had to stop. Not only were the Pharisees gaining nothing, they could lose everything. How would Herod and the Romans react to news that some rabbi from the backwater was being proclaimed king by a large number of people, many of them not from Jerusalem? Was it an invasion of sorts? A hide-in-plain-sight infiltration by yet another self-appointed insurrectionist? There had been plenty of those before. Jesus certainly didn't seem dangerous in a military sense. He wasn't advocating rebellion, but the radical nature of His ideas, the power of His presence, and the news of His miracles were already spreading like wildfire throughout all of Jerusalem. If they reached the wrong ears, there could be hell to pay. And the Pharisees knew all too well just where the Romans would come to collect that payment. The whole world had gone after Him, the Pharisees said to one another. And so they would go after Jesus too, and with a vengeance. They'd been contemplating Jesus' destruction ever since He'd first surfaced on the scene. And now, now was the time to take action. So off they skulked to plot His ruin. Meanwhile, the world still went after Him. John writes, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, if these Greeks had come to the feast to worship, they were at least tacit acceptors of the Jewish religion. They may have been prevented from entering that part of the temple grounds where Jesus was teaching because they were only proselytes, not yet fully committed to living the life of the Jewish faith. They came to the big festival of Passover because, well, they were a lot like those who will show up in church next Sunday for Easter, but don't show up much otherwise. They'll come for the power and for the glory of the resurrection, but they avoid the shame of the cross and the denial of self that a life of discipleship and service and sacrifice entails. Nevertheless, these Greeks approach Philip and they want to see Jesus. Note the verb that they use. They want to see Jesus. It doesn't say that they want to believe in Jesus as the Messiah or confess Him to be the Christ. It doesn't say that they want to worship Jesus as the Son of God or follow Him as subjects of the King or disciples of the Master. They want to see Him, to observe, to evaluate, to judge Him for themselves. So the question must be asked, which Jesus do they want to see? For that matter, which Jesus do you want to see? There are a lot of them out there, you know. Jesuses that the world goes after, whether in attraction or repulsion. Some chase a partly true but insufficient Jesus that they've cobbled together from selective Bible verses that don't offend their sensibilities, filling in the blanks with the imaginings of their hearts. Some go after Him with swords and bombs and AK-47s. 
because they cannot accept a Jesus that was the one true Son of God, the final Word, the all-sufficient Redeemer for their sins. Others go after Jesus with pen and ink or with words typed on a screen, condescendingly rejecting as preposterous the notion that God, if God exists at all, would become man, would and could die a miserable death to atone for all of the world's sins, and then rise again from the dead to one day return to judge and to separate those who believe this from those who do not. Now perhaps our constructs of Jesus are not nearly so crass. Our rejections of who He is and what He does not quite so blatant. And yet every day, in each and every one of our sins, known and unknown, we deny Him. Oh, we want the Lazarus-raising, miracle-working, triumphant King, but we often reject the One who gave His back to those who strike, who turned His cheeks to those who pulled out the beard, who hid not His face from the disgrace and the spitting. We sometimes want to see and grasp the Jesus of power and glory so that we can judge the sort of saving and the sort of Savior that we need. In other words, we want equality with God. To see as God sees, even though our efforts to achieve this can only lead to death. We must repent of seeking to be God, to try to recreate Him in an image of our choosing. Jesus chose this moment out of all of His earthly ministry to reveal that the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Though He had been many times worshipped and adored, especially in the events of Palm Sunday, His glorification was not in His miraculous conception and birth, not in His many miracles and His healings, not even in the raising of Lazarus or the triumphal entry to Jerusalem. If we want to see Jesus, if we want to truly see Him, to see Him as He is and for what He is and for what it means, then we must see Him as He wishes to be seen, raised up on the cross, fallen into the ground like a seed of wheat, dying so that He might be fruitful, hating the life in this world, and yet loving this world so much that He gave His life up for it. Serving and following His Father, honoring His Father in His humble obedience. See Jesus. See Him pursue not His own glory, but rather to have His Father's name glorified. Hear Jesus. Listen as He answers the thunder of God's voice from above, not with fear, but with quiet confidence. The judgment of this world and its evil ruler is nigh, He says. The Son of Man is to be lifted up, and all people will be drawn to Him, some in ridicule, some in shame, some in fear, but as many as He chooses in faith. The Greeks had come to see Jesus, as had the crowds when He rode into the city and when He taught in the temple. Yet Jesus concludes by warning all who would listen that the light, an essential component in seeing clearly, is to be among them only a little while longer. Without that light, there is no seeing. Without the light, there is only darkness where we know not where we go. Darkness into which we wander and are lost. 
Such was Jesus' invitation to the crowds and to the Greeks. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. At that He departed and hid Himself from them. They'd had their chance to see Him, to witness the signs, and yet unbelief prevailed in most of them. There's no little irony to the words that the Holy Spirit caused the evangelist John to record there either. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. Do you see the reflection of Jesus' Easter message to Thomas in these words? Do you? When Thomas had doubted the resurrection until he had the proof of the mark of the nails, Jesus had lovingly chided him, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Here John writes essentially a reversal of that statement. Condemned are those who have seen and yet do not believe. There's a powerful bracketing here connecting the crowd's skeptical question of early in Holy Week of who is this Son of Man to Thomas' bold confession following the crucifixion and resurrection, my Lord and my God. John then goes on to quote twice from the prophet Isaiah. In both cases, pointing toward a salvation that comes not merely from what is seen by the eyes or understood by the mind, but from what is revealed to the heart through the Word of God and what is understood by the heart. First he wrote, Lord, who has believed what He heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Also, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah saw God's glory even in the suffering of God's people as they were surrounded by enemies and seemingly defeated and destroyed. Yet God remained faithful to His people and to His promises in Isaiah's day, just as He has remained faithful to His promises to send a Savior, just as He has remained faithful to His promises to His church throughout the centuries. So too, He remains faithful to you and faithful to all of those who confess His Son as Lord and Savior today. God's true glory is always revealed in suffering, in sacrifice, in the faithful confessing unto death of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Despite the risks of being put out of the temple, out of the synagogue of popular culture, out of the synagogues of government, out of the synagogues of academia, even out of the synagogues of family and friends, He calls us to remain faithful too. You want to see Jesus? See the glory that comes not from man, but the glory of God the Father, flowing from the scandal of the bloody, painful, sun-killing, sin-killing cross of Jesus. For your glorification in heaven, Jesus was humbled on earth. For your adoption into the comforts of the household of God, Jesus became a suffering servant. For your disobedience, he was fully obedient, even to death on a cross. Look, Jesus has gone after the whole world. And see, 
you are gaining everything. In the name that is above every name, Jesus. Amen.